the mayfly is up the four words that spark excitement and magic in a fly angler's mind and it's that time of year when the mayfly is indeed now up on the jewel of irish lakes Loch carb so to get a taste of how the mayfly action has been so far this year and to find out why it's such an important time both culturally and economically for local communities we're joined on this episode by roy pierce the well-known angler guide and owner of grasshopper cottage on the shores of the lake but Tom, before we hear from Roy, I believe it was he who was actually responsible for your career in guiding. Yeah, hi, Derry. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, a while back now. It's yeah, it's nearly 30 years ago now. I just come back uh, from a year away. I was in, in Germany, in Berlin. I just arrived back and I think it was the first night and I was in one of the local pubs just sitting down. And bear in mind, I didn't know what was going to happen or what I was going doing. And I'd known Roy. Because uh, uh, he'd been here a good few years, well, he'd been here about five or six years at that stage, and he came up to me and um, he knew he knew I was a keen keen fisherman. He says, "Are you doing anything tomorrow?" And I went, "No, I'm not." And he says, "You'd never be able to bring two guys out fishing." And I just looked at him. I said, "Sure, I've never done that before." He said, "It'll be grand. Just go ahead, grand. Oh, you know, you know where to bring them and everything." And I said, "But what?" And he says, "I have a boat engine. And just bring them out." And uh, so I said, all right, I'll try it. And that's where it started. I remember I went out that day and, uh, yeah, we had, a, we had a couple of fish, which was great. It was in April, I think. And yeah, so it started from there. So uh, I've Roy to thank for uh, my, my career. <laughs> for, ruining, for ruining your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but I'm fascinated because like, because like you said before, like, you're, you know, your dad got you the boat when you were 13. You know, you're on the lake all the time. You were fishing all the time. And, you know, Carib is such a busy lake when it comes to visiting anglers. Like, one plus one, like, did it never occur to you go, geez, I could make a bit of money here guiding because you were just too busy just fishing for yourself. Like, Yeah, it's got, when you said that to me, I, I had to think. And yeah, no, never, never crossed my mind. I suppose, like, because my dad didn't do it, actually, you know, and it just never did till that evening. No, uh, maybe I always thought it would have interfered with my fishing. But yeah. as we discuss on it there later, for for when I started my first couple of seasons in Mayfly time, I remember I, I remember dapping in the middle. <laughs> so yeah, but no, never never crossed my mind. Amazing, yeah. Tell me this actually. That's it's an interesting point you made because um, people might hear, oh, you know, the guiding life. You're out in the the, the lake every day. You're f- you know you're with people. You're helping them catch fish. Like it, it obviously interferes with your own fishing, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> straight away. To be honest, yeah, I think we might have done it in another program or said it. First lockdown, when there was no visiting anglers, was the first May I fished for an awful long time. I don't get to fish in May at all. Like, okay, that first couple of years, I used to dap in the middle. I stopped that soon enough. Uh, it's not, you very rarely see uh, a guy dapping in the middle now. So, yeah, no, I, I, haven't, fi- I haven't fished Mayfly at all. You don't, you don't get to fish. Are you kind of like start of the season, end of the season, maybe, you know, the downtime, maybe that's when you try and get a bit of fishing done then, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. I mean, the busy times you don't. I mean, you know, that's that's part of parts of the job, you know? Yeah, yeah. You and know, do, you nearly, I, do you nearly feel like, you know, when you're so busy at this time of year, <laughs> the last thing you want to do is go fishing nearly like? Oh, no, because it's completely different. Sorry. Yeah, it's, I, I really enjoy my job. I really enjoy guiding, but it's it's completely different. Now, maybe I'm able to, compartmentalize or you know what i mean yeah. you know it's called I, I, after a lot of guiding 
I would find a great way to relax to go out and fish myself. Yeah, because I suppose people forget like how intense guiding is because, hey, you know, you're trying to put people on fish. The conditions might be great. You're having to weigh all that up. Where do I go? You know what? You know what kind of conditions it is, all that kind of stuff, how good the, the anglers are. And then you've got the social side of it as well, where you're having to, you know, be the chirpy, happy, you know, chatty. Yeah, the, there's actually I often think there's, there's a bit of entertainment there. And then you have to realize sometimes you have to temper it because, you know, you don't want to be chirpy, happy talking all the time in the middle so yeah there's there's a bit of, look every guide is different and that's and that's the beauty of it because it's not just all about a guy putting you over a fish which is very important don't get me wrong and then there's all the other other things and it's how you get on there's personal relationships and i've seen it here with all the different guides we've had here in in Doris. and there's different guides for different people you know i, I remember one particular guide is quite uh quite stern and some guys like being with him because it, it would keep people on their toes and they find mm. their fish better with that. None of those other guys who just couldn't hack that at all. They'd say, no, no, no. And they go for the more lackadaisical, easy guide. But that's, you know, there's a whole, uh, there's a book there, really. Yeah. You know, you know, there's, there's a whole psychology a, to it. Yeah, no, it? there is. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I really enjoy it. But it's like, look, like anything else. And as I say, I enjoy it. It is a job. Yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. you know, it's a job, you've got responsibilities, and it has to be tasks have to be performed. But I enjoy it, I have to say, I do enjoy it. Uh, let's hear from Roy Pierce now, Tom. Uh, and I first asked him how the Mayfly season has been going so far. It's been a patchy, uh, but it started early, the water was low, uh, we had a warm winter. It's hard to describe why it started so early, but because of low water and Probably water temperature was up a little bit. It started in around, I suppose, the 24th of April, which, you know, sometimes you wouldn't see it for a week or 10 days after that, you know. Um, because of that, it's hard to determine. I mean, years ago, we would never have come here before the 17th of May. Um, you know, you're looking at uh, two to three weeks earlier than tradition would have had it you know but i'm going back i suppose a little bit longer than you guys but uh has it become less predictable like you know in years gone by it was a kind of you could set your your hat by a certain date nearly but has it become like you said sometimes it's earlier sometimes it's later yeah it's probably been, been coming progressively earlier through the years uh you know i'm, I'm, I'm talking you maybe 10 days earlier than on average than it would have been let's say 50 years ago um, now, you could say that's down to general global warming, or you could argue this, that, or the other, but there's no doubt about it. We've not had, in the west of Ireland anyway, what I would call a proper cold winter. I mean, there was no ice on the lake at any stage this year. I mean, years and years past, they used to cycle across the ice to the land shore, you know. We've only had one night of uh, frost here, Roy, over the whole winter. You know, isn't that about it? Certainly, I would always have uh, gauged when the mayfly would start by a, a very well-known old Gilly Paddy. Somerville used to have a lilac tree in his front garden. And I always used to say, when that comes into bloom, then the mayfly would start, you know. But everybody has their own little the white thorn, the what have you. But, I mean, blackthorn has only literally just finished uh, a day or two ago. And next thing, the white thorn is out rarely if ever do the two ever come together does that affect the fishing in any way when it comes up a bit earlier 
No, I can remember excellent years when it went from duck fly straight into olives and then into mayfly. Um, the fishing didn't seem to uh, be affected adversely at that time. So I don't think so. It, it's well, The answer is I don't know. And Tom, how have you seen it in terms of the fishing, like, you know, yourself, you know, the last few weeks? Yeah, what Roy said there, one word describes it all, patchy, mm. really patchy. And exactly what he said, it's been up since the 24th, Roy, as you said there. And, you know, you're thinking it's going to it's going to start now because normally when it comes up, you expect it to come on full gusto. But it hasn't, Roy, has it? It's just been dribs and drabs and pitter patter, you know? Yeah, I thought... Um, Inchigil is an interesting case in point. There was a big hatch down there apparently today. Now, I would normally never go near Inchigil for another two weeks. The end of May normally, Roy. Once, once yeah. it finishes here, once it finishes yeah. here, we'd go off to Inchigil. We'd go off to Inchigil. But I, I still take this publicly quite a lot of fly to come here. I, I'm always reminded of John Reddy Sullivan, who told me of a year, and now this must be, I'm talking 60, 70 years ago, when he went out on the 24th of April, managed to get a box of mayfly and caught four fish dapping. And then in the exact same year, he went out on the 24th of June, again, with a box of mayfly and caught four fish dapping. So there's a full span of full two two months there. Uh, so it's not unknown that it would... Uh, be protracted and dragged out. It does, is it frustrating for the anglers maybe now that are coming because you're saying if it's patchy, you know, you, you can't, it's, and it's not as predictable. So the anglers are coming, is it mayfly season or not? Like, you know. You know, there's a famous old saying is they should have been here next week. <laughs> yeah. And that, that really puts it in a, in a nutshell. You know, you should have been here next week because you really don't know. Yeah. You really can't predict. It's down to conditions, sometimes conditions, conditions, conditions will dictate whether the angler is successful or not. Um, but it, it does seem over the years that uh, there's been a shift. I mean, years and years ago, we have what's called the North Lake and the South Lake here. Uh, fishing the North Lake would have been considered inferior to the South Lake in those days, but that maybe 15, 20 years ago changed in the reverse. And then it became fishing for mayfly, became better in the North Lake than the South Lake. And certainly the South Lake seems to be recovering over the last two or three years. Now, whether that will continue or not, it's hard to know. Where's the dividing line, actually, just between the North and the South? Uh, political disputes, I'm not into. <laughs> <laughs> just say peninsula, right? Peninsula will do. <laughs> yeah. I suppose if you were to say... I would have said the outside of Inishtoris and Canaver Island uh, over to the Glan Shore would be north or west or northwest of that would be actually the, the South Lake. That sounds a bit of a conundrum, but uh, yeah. that's the way it is, yeah. And and tell me this, um, how has it been? Obviously, it's it's been tough, you know, with the COVID years, Roy, um, but are you starting to see numbers starting to pick up now? Is there any sense of kind of, you know, that Mayfly season, that buzz of, you know, the season when the, the ganglers are around? Like, Oh, there certainly is. I think there's a pent-up uh, expectation of people who've been waiting for three, nearly three years to come back fishing. I mean, sadly, a few of them haven't made it, right, literally, you know, uh, but uh, there seems to be to be a greater interest from Irish 
home anglers at the moment than I would say there is from UK or continental anglers. I think they've been a bit reluctant to travel. I think travel has been difficult up until relatively recently. They didn't know whether they had to quarantine. They didn't know this, that or the other. So it's, it's really put a bit of a dampener on people traveling overseas. Must have been very difficult for you, like, you know, running the cottage, like, you know, in terms of obviously you had to shut down, anglers couldn't come visit, like, were you kind of crawling the walls or did you find it actually relaxing and having the quietness and the lake to yourself? Like, It, it, it was, uh, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I can manage normally to get away in the winter time, but having to spend a winter in Cornamuna was, was, was dire. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I'm not used to that. And with the pub closed as well, it was double diarrhea. <laughs> that was a double whammy, Roy. Double whammy. <laughs> at, least when you, at least when you are here for those winter months, you, know, you can go down and talk about it. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, to answer your question, uh, you know, normally we can have five, six rooms, but we have to keep rooms available at the moment just per chance anybody gets COVID. And so we're only operating sort of a half blast at the moment. It's a fair point, actually. Yeah, you don't think of it like that in terms of, yeah, you know, needing that in case something somebody does need to isolate or anything happens like that. Like, I have no choice if somebody's staying here from the UK, which most of our people or many of our people are. Um, and, uh, you know, you'd have to accommodate them as best you could. Tell me this, Roy, that's not a Cornamona accent. How did you end up with Grasshopper Cottage on the, the lake, on the, the lakes of uh, the lake shore of Carroblack? Yeah, well, I'm originally from North County Kilkenny. My father was a, what would have been called a duffer. Uh, he was a keen enough sportsman all around, but he, he really wasn't a fisherman, an angler as we would know them today. But he really enjoyed going out there and dapping. And we came here, I first came here as a child. I remember catching my first trout with my father here when I was eight years of age presenting it to my school teacher back in Kilkenny and she trounced me the next day for not getting two. <laughs> she wanted friends, her friends to have trout as well. In those days, they were prized eating. Um, they wrapped them up in dock leaves and sent them by train from Mount Cross to Kilkenny. And they'd arrive the next day, you know, they'd arrive the next morning which is hardly possible even today. It's hard to believe that, but that's that was the fact. They got them to the train at Mount Cross at about 4 o'clock or 4.30 in the afternoon, and they'd arrive at Kenny next morning. You know, you got the bug as a kid, um, but, like, I'm presuming, like, was a fly fishing career on the horizon for you, or what happened? <laughs> I mean, as a child growing up... I, Visitors to the house back in Kilkenny would say, where's Roy? And uh, all my mother, always on the river. I lived by water. I lived on water. I, I caught fish by all methods, legal and illegal. Uh, I, I just grew up with fish. You know? But it, I mean, I had a, another career as a, as, a, as a builder in Dublin for some 20 years. And then it, in the recession in the early 80s, we had to change tack. And uh, I took up, I basically established, I suppose, at that time, a travel agency specializing for fishermen. Because I was coming here right through the troubles in Northern Ireland and everything. I noticed at that time that uh, 
English anglers, of course, weren't welcome anywhere in Ireland during the Troubles. People forget that. I mean, they were spat at, their cars were slashed, their tires were slashed. It was a nasty time in Ireland, north and south. Um, so all those traditional anglers from the UK just upped and left. And it had you know, somebody, it wasn't going to just recreate once the chain of repetitive uh, visits to Ireland was broken. They just simply went to Scotland or they went elsewhere. So how did you bring them back? Basically, um, I set up a travel agency. It was a, I used to stay in an old bed and breakfast house here in Duras at that time. And they said, oh, it's a great pity the English anglers aren't back and all the rest of it. And I said, well, is there anybody trying to get them back? So at that time, there was a fellow by the name of Brian Gerrishy in Port Folsha in Dublin, who was a keen angler. And we put together packages going to England uh, on promotional tours, putting on slideshows and film shows and what have you. And gradually, but certainly, uh, we attracted various fishing clubs from the UK, some of which are actually here now for the 30th year, actually here with us today. And is that a big part of it, the, the like the carb for UK anglers, like that a sizable chunk of the of the industry per se in terms of the visitors that it's very dependent on on the UK market. Yeah, you, you you tend to forget that the big biggest business in angling in Ireland with the UK was not in game fishing; uh, it was in coarse fishing, and the Midland lakes and rivers were a mecca for for English anglers for years and years and years, primarily because in England they had a close season for fishing for coarse fish, which we never had here. So in their off season or their close season, they would all come to Ireland to do their fishing. And it was huge business. I mean, massive business down lanes, but uh, you, you talked about fortune. Game angling was the was very much the infant of, of their angling promotional work. Uh, it was a, a neat, it was Brian Garrity and a fellow named Paul Harris, in, who was UK angling representative in in within in England. He was based, I think, Coventry or somewhere like that, and he was extremely instrumental in, in putting together these shows, getting uh, angling clubs throughout England, uh, putting on a a slideshow and sometimes there'd be sport prizes and maybe there might be half a dozen operators from Ireland including myself there trying to attract people but in those days we used to run a full package they, they liked everything packaged up uh, you know the ferry we, we dealt with the ferries and the airlines and we packaged the whole thing up and made it look very financially attractive I suppose but we put people all over Ireland. I mean, it wasn't just Corrib, it was from Killarney to Donegal. And tell me this, has, like, when was the peak, would you say, in terms of the, 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 the numbers? Like, has it been kind of dropping slowly kind of in the last two decades? or It certainly has. It took a couple of years, obviously, after the troubles in Northern Ireland for things to pick up. I suppose the peak was in around the mid-90s. 95 to 2000 was probably the peak of it, you know. What happened after that is difficult to pinpoint. It's, it's the old, there was a great tradition of whole families would go on holidays and they wouldn't go for four or five days. They'd go for two weeks, sometimes three weeks. You know, it was a, 
they'd, they'd come with their own cook and what have you. They might rent a house or if they were, depending what type of accommodation they, they wanted to uh, to end up in. But I mean, I put people in everything from Ashford Castle to camping in the, in the garden. It was good. Unfortunately, it all came to an end. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, Roy. I'd forgotten, but I remember you telling me that about how you would create the whole package for somebody back That's then. Right. But that yes. doesn't really exist now. Probably maybe well, just the internet what, or whatever. But. What happened to me, uh, or to us, should I say, I mean, it was primarily I, I established a travel agency whilst I was still living in Dublin. And uh, what happened afterwards, after about five or six years of operating quite successfully, putting people all over there, is the European Union, in its infinite wisdom, decided to make the agent who was dealing with these liable for all occasions. And of course, from, from when the client, as it were, left their front door in England or Germany or wherever, and until, they're like, until they got home again, the agent was liable. And of course, that required massive insurance bonds, which we could never actually afford. So we had, we had to pack up the travel agency business. You know, you'd have the colonels or the judges or, you know, these kind of professions that could take off for a month or two, you know, and that was the thing. They'd come down and they'd fish, fish it hard for that, for that time. And really, you know, they'd move lock, stock and barrel. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, I, I remember non-fishing wives sitting reading libraryfuls of books whilst the husbands were <laughs> fishing, yes. And of course, the ladies used to fish too, which you don't see as much of today as we used to see. But is it, tell me this, is it, um, do you think more is it like people are kind of more nearly doing day trips now, Roy, that they kind of just come up, you know, they do the, like obviously within Ireland, you do the day trip or maybe a weekend trip from the UK. You know, they, like Tom was saying, you do your, get your information on the internet get the boat across or whatever, or drive across, and it's in and out nearly like, is it? I think the whole culture of particularly fly fishing and game fishing was very much the preserve of the more upper classes, as it were. Uh, and that has changed. There's no doubt about that. Now everybody that wants to fish can fish and does fish. Uh, and I think those very wealthy clients that we used to have can now the world is their oyster. They can go to Russia or they can go to New Zealand or they can go to Canada. It's not quite uh, as closed as it used to be, you know. But you look at the history of a lot of the old fishing lodges in Ireland, they're nearly all uh, have connections back to the UK. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Tell me this, um, and, and even Tom, actually, you might tell me this kind of when you were growing up was, um, and is this still practiced? where the kids would catch the live mayfly and sell them to the anglers. Uh, does it go on anymore? The kids in certain parts of around Cora, but particularly Uterard area, used to get off school for the week or two weeks to go and collect mayfly and sell them. You could drive through Uterard in the early hours of the morning from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock and the boys would be standing there waiting for you with their boxes of mayfly. I think it was important pin money too. I mean, it, it's, it doesn't sound a lot, but uh, it, it, it was, I think, a, an important source of those extra pennies in those days. Yeah, it was. It wasn't as big here, Roy. And it just, I just wonder when you used to be in in, in Bayview, what was there anybody there? Was there any the youngsters that would be selling them to your father? Do you remember? Well, Connor, Connor was the first one who arrived uh, <laughs> occasionally, but. Uh, Generally speaking, no, it wasn't the same tradition in Colombona no. that you had in Uterard or Hedford. 
Yeah. I suppose yeah. probably because Uthrard had a couple of the hotels, the houses, and more, probably probably more people. Like we didn't have, you no, know, we had a few guest houses here, but we probably probably didn't have the same number really compared to some place no. like Uthrard. No, no, we didn't. We were much more remote. It, it was harder to get to Cornamona than it was to the other places. But I remember my father used to always fish Loch Derg for a week before uh, coming up to Loch Corrib. Derg was always earlier in Mayfly hatches, and he would bring his Mayfly with him from Loch Derg. He'd actually, would he bring the Mayflies up from Loch Derg? Yeah. Oh, yes. He'd, he'd <laughs> always arrive up here with boxes of Mayflies, yes. Do you remember Frank Liskin telling us that? You hear the time. Frank Diskin told us one year here, oh, and he reckoned it was about back in the 60s. Frank Diskin has passed on now. He was an old uh, boatman. He worked for the Inland Fisheries Board Trust. But he said th- there was no Mayfly here for one season. Do you remember that, right? And they actually drove down to Cara, the boatman, every evening to collect Mayflies. I actually did that myself. Did you? We actually travelled from Bayview with, with Edward, uh, beating the bushes around Loch Mask. And wow. even venturing once to Loch Cara, which at that time wow. had a prolific mayfly hatch. Um, it's also is coincidentally happened in more recent times with the olive hatch, where we had absolutely no olives whatsoever. And everybody was saying, oh, that's the end of olives. We'll never see olives again. How could we? And the very next year, there were olives galore here. I remember that. That's only a couple of years ago, right? It's not that long ago. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, no olives whatsoever. Mm. And there was olives in other parts of the lake, but the olives up here indoors, gone. Just gone. Didn't have Amazing how localized yeah. it, the hatch is, isn't it? Like, you know, yeah. like, people underestimate, I think, how important Mayfly season was to the economies of local communities, you know, you know in even Uchtarard, you know, I love driving through these places at this time of year because there is a real sense of atmosphere. And I can only imagine what it must have been like 30, 40, 50 years ago. You know, that real sense of, you know, I remember we were talking, Tom, um, before to one of the old um, guest house owners um, down the road from me. And they said it was a time of year that they stopped pretty much the farming, you know, because pretty much, you know, that's how you made your money for the next, you know, month or six weeks or whatever, like that people came in, it became the guest house, you know, and it was an important um, additional income for them, like, and I think people may be kind of, obviously that's kind of dying away now that the, the importance of the local economy, isn't it? Hmm. What do you think, Roy? Still, well, still a fair bit comes in. The, yeah, we, we were trying the other night to work out how many pints of Guinness the group from UK had drunk in 30 years. Oh, we on, say the Tunbridge crew. Say the, Roy, say, say the Tunbridge crew, go on. <laughs> don't, don't hide the fact. <laughs> Sorry. We, we, we worked it out at about 6,000 pints of Guinness. In one season? That's not bad. No, no. Over 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's only six nights. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it was, it was big business. Of course it was. Uh, I mean, the whole economy perked up because from the grocery shop to pub to you name it. And you know, when I think back on it, fishing wasn't the be-all and end-all of the trip. My father used to persuade all his local mates back in Kilkenny, now, come on, you can join us. And most of it was for playing cards. 25s and game of solo was very much top of the agenda. 
And of course, if the weather wasn't perfect, they simply didn't go fishing. They they, they went to the circus in Ballinrobe, I remember one year. And, uh, you know, they used to go to the race. If there was a race meeting on, that took precedence. If there was in Ballinrobe or even Galway, they, they went to the races. You know, it was a, there were a bunch of lads in those days, yeah. Does the buzz still come when you hear it, the mayflies up? You know, is there still a kind of sense of anticipation and excitement? I think, generally speaking, anglers look forward to the Mayfly because it gives them an opportunity to uh, use all different methods for catching fish. You know, it's uh, the, the the fish just go feeding, and uh, once they're feeding actively, they're how should they more easily caught? I won't say readily caught because they're not always, but more easily caught than at any other time of year. And dapping, is it still done? Is it still popular? Or? Yeah, not, not as popular. I mean, uh, angling methods have progressed and changed over the years. I mean, when I first came here, dapping and trailing flies, as they call it, uh, was our brickeen fishing. That was it. There wasn't anything much done besides that. Uh, but nowadays, there's such a... A difference in methods of catching fish and a lot of advanced techniques have developed over the years for uh, winking them out, much to the disgust of some anglers, but other anglers, it, it's it's uh, really worthwhile. You know. It's a beautiful sight, I think, you know, when you see the angler sitting in the boat. I don't know, there's something poetic nearly about it. Dapping uh, demands a level of concentration which isn't really demanded from other techniques if you're not watching that fly all the time and know the procedure for, for hooking him you'll miss him you know he'll be gone you won't be there whereas with wet fly fishing you can pull pull but you wait for the fish to tell you it's there uh, it's too late in dapping if you, if, you, if you felt the fish he's either hooked himself or, you, or you've missed him you know uh, but it demands a concentration which to me, is probably the most relaxation because you can't think of anything else. Uh, you know, if if your mind wanders or you look around you, you're 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 doomed to disaster. You know, it's it's a it's pure concentration. And uh, I, I mean, uh, Sorka, my wife here, she's she's wasn't nicknamed the deadly killer some forty years ago <laughs> for no reason at all, but she could outfish me three to one. <laughs> Dapping, it's not unique to Ireland, is it? Was it in Scotland as well? Was it in England as well? It, it's in Scotland. It's unique. Well, Scotland has dapping as well, but Scotland, they don't dap the, the, a natural fly. They dap heavily dressed Lahordis or other type of flies. But it, with us in Ireland, it was always, it was always more traditionally a live fly, be it mayfly or daddy long legs or grasshopper. So which was suggesting that dapping maybe originated in Ireland then, did it, do we think? or and Well, the style of dapping from a uh, drifting boat, I would say, um, between here and Scotland, probably, yeah. Yeah, I, I, of course, as an Irish person, I claim that it was We'll Ireland. claim it, we'll claim yeah, it. Yeah, we'll claim it. <laughs> and it never, never went to England, did it? No, no. <laughs> they have a form of dapping in England uh, from the bank, just poking a rod through, right? And, you know, dapping it on the surface. But from a drifting boat, no, no, it's, it's we'll we'll call it Irish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when we're on about it there, and I was going to mention it to Roy, and I just remember about the end of it because I did it 
initially when I started boating. But definitely, Roy, when you'd been coming up here first, the boatman always dapped. Like the, so the boatman always fished with the two clients. Yeah, but dapping allows the boatman to do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you, he, it's one, he has one arm on the oar and he has one on the, on the rod. And, of course, the, he can manoeuvre the boat. He, he, if, you know, we see, when you're used to fishing a lot, you can see fish ahead of you that the angler, by and large, misses or doesn't see. So he can quietly push the boat one way or another to suit himself. That, and, that's course, that's that only a, a, a wild, scurrilous rumour, Roy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I dapped with probably the most effective dapper that I ever came across, uh, which was John Reddy. I mean, he just simply never missed a fish. Uh, he, he, he had the uncanny knack of being able to dap about half the distance that I would dap and still catch more fish than the guy either side of him, you know. He presented the fly in a particular way. It's not just everybody can dap, but to become an exceptional dapper is different than that. There are certain people I know who quite simply don't miss fish, which is unheard of by most dappers. I suppose you don't get the you don't get a nickname like the deadly killer or the great white shark, or the great uh, undeservedly. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> No. What tell me this right? Is is Mayfly season? Is it your favorite time of year on carb? Yeah, I mean it's it's years ago it would have been a clear favorite. Um now I have a couple of other periods of the year which I I really enjoy, but it's normally because it offers me top of the water fishing. I'm very much, as Tom will tell you, somebody who rarely uses anything but a floating line. And only then in competition or something where I, I feel honor bound to do something better than I am doing. But uh, no, it, it offers top of the water fishing. I mean, there are periods of duck fly time, which does that. It can be superb as well. And I really enjoy the back end sedge fishing, which unfortunately last year was very disappointing. I'm always interested in kind of looking to the future generations um, and in terms of kind of what you think we need to be doing, I suppose, to kind of preserve carb as the kind of jewel in the crown for wild brown trout fishing? I think that people's expectations through the years, I remember going to game, as I said earlier, going to game shows in the UK and at the end of the day, remember now I'm talking to a, a dangling club that are generally fishing stocked waters and asking generally speaking now, tell me uh, what would you expect to catch and not carb on a good day? How many would you, fish would you expect to catch? They'd look around at each other and say, I don't know, bag up at seven or eight. And I remember clearly saying, the day you catch four good trout on Loch Corrib, you've had a good day. And that was the time when the size limit was 12 inches, not 13 inches or 14 inches, you know. Um, count statistics are very misleading because we're not always comparing like with like. Um, but I do clearly remember saying that and watching the faces drop. What? Only four fish? I tell you, if we could average four fish now, we'd be counting ourselves very lucky indeed. Don't forget the change in the size limit. We actually keep a record with the Kent group because traditionally they only measured, when they first came, they measured 12-inch fish as a, as a keepable fish. 
And then the size went to 13 and made a substantial difference to the catches. So we kept measuring fish just out of interest to see how it compared between the 12 inch and the 13 inch limit. And it was substantial. I mean, the catches really were reduced by, I would say, 60% between 12 and 13 inches. Yeah, it's very true, Roy, because remember, we've discussed that because our hospice competition, which we run on catch and release, is the old 12 inch uh, yes. limit. And like at sometimes there's actually 40% more fish in the overall uh, return for the competition. Not often, uh, sometimes it's yeah. up 30%, but all because the limit is lower. And it's very true that you say that we've always said that we're both taking from the same hymn sheet here, Roy. It's changed the mindset, and people don't appreciate a 12 inch fish now because it's not now, it's not that they're because people are throwing all the fish back, but it's in the mindset oh my god, this 12 and a half, half inch fish isn't a keeper, so I'm, I'm yeah. discounting it. And like we know, Roy, sometimes getting a 12 and a half inch fish can be just quite a challenge, you can oh, cover yeah. them out the side and everything, so yeah. But when you, when you, I remember in, when I was manager at the Costlum from oil fishery, we used to measure every single fish that was returned. These are sea trout now. And there was no size limit on sea trout. And some of the fish that came in, I mean, they were pathetically short. <laughs> I mean, they, they really just went with a piece of rasher on, on the frying pan, you know. Um, and remember, I can't remember personally, but I do remember big catches when we first came here when the limit on Loch Corrib was 10 inches. And that remained so for several years on Loch Con afterwards. And Loch Con then got the reputation of being a much better lake than Corrib was. They put the size limit up on Loch Corrib, but they didn't put it up on Loch Con at the same time. And suddenly Loch Con got the reputation of being a much more prolific fishery than Corrib, simply because of the size limit. Yeah, it did, didn't it? Very much so. Yeah, and just your bigger numbers. But if you look at, yeah. you know, there was a sizable amount of those fish between 10 and 12 inches. Yeah. You forget, too, that, you know, even today now, if you go to Fish Killarney or somewhere, you're, you're fishing for much, much smaller fish. Uh, you know, when I first went to Fish Killarney, I thought, gosh, this is a very disappointing place to come at all. But not appreciating that the fish genuinely didn't grow that big there. And that they were good fish in their own right. They get spoiled by corrib. We're, yeah, we're we used to big fish. That's a good one, isn't it? That's a good line. Yeah, we're spoiled by corrib. You know, yeah, yeah it's the quality. Are. But you yeah. guys would be biased anyway. Oh, of course we would. No, not really. We're completely neutral here. Actually, speaking about fish, right? We ask you size of fish. Your most memorable one. What's your most memorable fish? Is it or, and is it from corrib? First of all. No, it isn't. And it, 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 a very long-winded and very unlikely story lies behind it. So I'm not sure that we should record it here. But I think we should. I think we should, yeah. Sorry. I'll you should, do you? <laughs> okay. I'll try and be as brief as I possibly can. Growing up in North Kilkenny on a what was then a very prolific small trout stream, there happened to be a timber mill on the side of the river and the toilet of the sim timber mill overhung the river to say the least but in those days going back to what we called dibbling which is the english version of dapping 
we used as kids to dab blue bottles underneath the trees and the bushes. But there was this particular trout underneath this, the tree. And the only way I could get at them was to put, this was maybe some 10, 12 feet above the, the river, was to put the rod down through the toilet seat and dibble the blue bottle down below. And I, I did actually catch it. It was a massive fish. It was a pound and a quarter, which was a huge fish for that river. <laughs> Did you catch but, uh, it through the seat? The most, through the seat of the trouble. Yes. It was definitely a fish. <laughs> but it is the most memorable. Yes. Memorable in more ways than one. <laughs> yeah, I know, but there you are. You did ask which was most memorable. <laughs> we did. A bit we of toilet did. roll, it was the fly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. But, um, <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, when you, when you talk of memorable fish, generally people's go to size big fish. And I've been very fortunate to catch a couple of really big fish occurred through my years, yeah, on fly. I think one particular one that stands out was one that I, I, I hooked at Cassidy's Point and landed in Schoolhouse Bay. It had to be, it was a bad, poorly conditioned fish, but in a good condition, it must have been 16, 17 pounds weight. But uh, it, it barely weighed 11 pounds at the time. But it was some tussle, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's some image to, to finish on, I think, Roy. Um, actually, no, sorry, the, the fish from the toilet is actually staying in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Not the 16-pounder. You see, you shouldn't have phrased the question. Well, you know, if we did ask memorable, we did not mention biggest. We yeah, no, and memorable. in fairness, that's why we ask it, because, you know, memorable is, memorable well, is can be defined in many different ways. Yeah, well, it's very true, actually, because, you know, uh, it, it's not always the biggest fish, the one that you remember. It's true. Well, I, and actually, do you know the most memorable for me so far is, um, sorry, going off tangent now, uh, no. is um, brought my boys fly fishing um, for the first time. Uh, they were three and five. And do you know where it was? It was in Prospect Park in the center of Brooklyn. So it's what? like it's like the central in New York. Yeah, New York, New York. We were living yeah. there for a couple of months, um, a couple of years ago. And uh, so Prospect Park is like uh, the central park of Brooklyn. So like, you know, you're surrounded by high rise apartments and all that kind of stuff. And there's a lake in the middle and there's a uh, bluegill, bluegill fish. They're like literally that size. And so brought them fishing for the very first time. And, you know, they were catching like every every cast they were catching, you know, and it was just flicking the line out, but seeing the absolute amazement, joy, I can't even sum it up. There's a picture I have. I took it. Uh, what the fish is, you know, it's not a little fella. He's on the, the size of the, on the yeah. side of the bank. And just the face of the kids was just like, you know, and that to me summed it up. If I can, if I can replicate that for them or, or sow that seed for them, you know, for their, hopefully that will be them hooked for, for life. And that to me is the most memorable fish so far. But I, I think what, what has happened on Corrib is that in years past, people got into fishing, first fishing for perch, and then uh, progressed from there on into into trout or what have you. But when, when the size limit gets, it's, Corrib is not an easy place to catch fish. Let's be quite blunt about it. It's quite difficult. And particularly now when various methods which might have been considered okay in the past are no longer, they're all being frowned upon now. Um, and there's a sort of a, 
a begrudgery amongst uh, fly fishermen, I suppose, against all other methods, which I don't subscribe to whatsoever. Uh, I mean, to me, all legal methods, as long as it's totally legal, is fair play. Um, and I think that they're potentially squashing youth by denying them that satisfaction of catching a fish and if necessary eating it or winning a prize with it or what have you I, I would go the opposite way I'd say they should actually lower size limits lim keep the number of fish that you can keep low but allow allow a child to catch a 12 inch or even a 10 inch fish I mean quite frankly if they're limited to the number they can take it's going to have less impact than if they were to catch bigger fish but that's just a personal point of view I think kids need reward for their efforts and Corb is definitely not the place to do it at the moment if you have a stock fishery great I would advocate a lot more small stock fisheries where kids can go and learn to fish catch fish and let them progress from that if they want the challenge certainly <laughs> Corb will do that you got to graduate to the to the University of Corb then yeah, that's it. Roy, thanks a million for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating, you know, getting the kind of Very good. trip down memory lane. Don't forget that trout. <laughs> well done, Roy. <laughs> thanks, Roy, for playing to Thanks a Thanks to Roy Pierce for joining us on the show. So don't forget to rate, review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus, you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.